Radio War. Miss Springman came by my table at lunch the very next day and said, without any provocation at all, Look, Desmond, or whatever your name is, I don't know who you are, and I don't know who you think you are, and I don't care, but the walls are thin between these cabins, so I know what you're up to, what you do, and with whom you do it when you're up all night claiming you can't sleep. I concluded two things from what she said. One, her cabin abutted mine on the other corridor, and two, she'd been listening to and remembering my table talk. She interrupted herself at this point to lean in quite close to my face. So close, in fact, I half feared an attack. I was eating a fish, one of the deckhands whom I had befriended had caught it off the forecastle just that morning, and I remember quite accidentally breathing the smell of it into her nostrils as she approached. She backed off slightly and then continued her tirade. Don't try anything like that with me, you understand, you dirty bum. I've got your number. You're idle and bored, and you think you can fiddle with people just like a car radio. Well, try it with me, and you'll fry, Buster, I warn you. I don't forgive, and I don't forget. It was terrible to hear her driven to such extremity of hard feeling against me, and she spoke with that charming flat tonality of the simple folk of America, that coy and fetching way they articulate in their pathetic little attempts at communication, saying, We don't, when they mean in standard English, we don't own, or some other such indecipherable inanity, then laughing that hideous laugh they laugh like so much leisure pork and pigtails. And right away I started thinking she had said, I don't defecate and I don't fatigue, but of course she hadn't, I just heard it that way, and I had no idea she stayed up nights listening to the plumbing for the latest gurgle let off by my toilet in this terrible sinkhole of flesh in which we fool mortals dwell. She must have been a chronic self-abuser, I thought to myself, a very dangerous type. I determined right then and there to catch her out at it red-handed if an opportunity presented itself which, naturally, it did. In due time, I don't know what she expected me to do, lucubrate to a tape recording of her tarnished past. I have never traveled with a more disagreeable group of people. But then people always say this when they're on the road to nowhere. By now it was late February, and we had inched our way southward down the west coast of Africa toward Cape Town. Fortunately, the weather was fine, but every new cloud on the horizon would provoke another attack of anxiety. For instance, they'd run out of lemons at the bar, and there was some talk of scurvy. Whenever we'd see another ship on the horizon, we'd raise and lower a little flag on the stern, a way of saying hello when out at sea. I wandered by the pilot house where the captain hung on to the edge of his instruments. "'What's wrong?' I asked, with concern, fearing he too would go down before his ship. He was apparently still upset by something which had transpired in Monrovia. Monrovia happens to be the place where his ship was registered, so I thought perhaps it had something to do with that. I asked him, I said, "'Is it anything official? Do we hoist the Jolly Roger?' The captain smiled for the first time that day and said, "'Jolly Roger! Very funny!' So I was happy for that." At least I could still make him smile, if not laugh out loud. I feel it is such a pressing need for talented people, artistic types, people with entertainment in their blood, to provide whatever comic relief possible for those in positions of authority, to lighten the burden of those saddled by terrible life-and-death responsibilities with a song or a joke or even a sultry little dance. He was silent for a time as we watched the sea do what she does, and then he said, "'Give me one good English sentence. One sentence. I'll fix them.' 
thought this highly unlikely not to speak of unusual, and questioned him further, but he would not or could not elaborate at that moment. But it was an enlightenment in and of itself to see that even such an exalted personage as the captain could sink to the common cry for vengeance. Later, I gave him the following problem. There was a hole there than the size, say, of one's thumb and forefinger wrapped around the shoulders of a pear. Apropos of nothing in particular, really, but speaking perhaps reams on my situation. I had no idea at the time what use he would make of this. You see, I thought at the time that the skull itself was nothing but a mass of emotional scar tissue, enclosing three concentric core of functioning cellular activity, cellular activity whose action was intelligence. The outermost core apprehended fact. The second core contained a worried world of logic, math, our everyday comings and goings on. And the third core, the brain itself, where fact was manipulated and transmuted by raw nervous power. This third core was always uncontrolled, and in it was the real and actual anarchic movement of intelligence, the Frankenstein, the man overboard. And here was the capacity for reaching out and seizing speech somewhere in the second year of life. So I was very tolerant of the captain and his asinine little language lessons. We continued our transit down the west coast, the sad coast as so many of us began to call her. It took a good number of days, far more than most of us were prepared to spend. We, those of us who had managed to hold on to our good humor, were smoking and drinking in the lounge one night not long after dinner, listening to the shortwave when in walks the purser with two prostitutes he had smuggled aboard in Monrovia. I guess I wasn't the only troublemaker on this ship. Well, we let out a collective gasp, and several of the weak-kneed and fainter-hearted amongst us left the room. Miss Springman strode out on her little alligator boots, but Nanette stayed and showed what a real lady can do when faced with a difficult social situation. She befriended the two hapless women in a shake of her little head, had them drinking at our table and practically eating out of my hand. It really was a whole new kind of party after that. I spent hours in their little broom closet of a cabin trying to get them to open up about themselves, attempting to question them on their social backgrounds, but they did not appear interested. They passed amongst us with that easy grace that is the mark of true professionals. There was a civil war going on in Chad, just inland from where we sailed. This is what we learned from the wireless. Chad is a vast territory stretching from the Sahara Desert to the forests of Central Africa. From what we heard, it is impossibly riven by ethnic, religious, and political conflict. Despite potential underground wealth, the capitalist projection for the economy has failed to flower and remains somewhat stunted in the midst of fourteen years of civil warfare. Chad entered our history when she was first colonized by France at the turn of the century. Foreign occupation and military domination were sensibly accepted by the farmers and traders of the South, in return for protection from occasional raiding and pillaging from the nomadic camel-raisers of the North. The Northern organization, especially the Tubu of the Tibesti region, took arms against the Europeans, that old invitation to genocide. The French recruited their puppet officials and troops from the Southern Saras, many of whom accepted the Catholic yoke. Professional colonial hands call this policy 
doubling, a practice still in use throughout the world by those involved in popular manipulation and even in personal defense. Of course, it's most egregious instances with the American adventure in Vietnam. With just a fraction more real work in the short run, one can eliminate the genuinely bothersome necessity of further and seemingly endless outlay of labor, and instead, and indeed, lay there in the moonshine and see others as they would have you see themselves, come on, dear, and capitalize therein on this very basic move in diplomatic jujitsu. Some hesitate, again the mealy-mouthed and the hyper-apostatized, to involve themselves in this simple procedure because of the initial necessity for the outlay of innocent blood, but believe me, the dividends are extraordinary. One added benefit on the colonial level is the possibility to double or in some cases triple one's sphere of graft and taxation. The first puppet show after independence was directed by a man called Francois Albrecht from a suburb of Lyon involved in a local man called Tombal Baye. The lid was blown by the publication of some secretly printed memoirs by pre-colonial guerrilla heroes leading to a Muslim rebellion in 64 and the creation of the Chad National Liberation Front two years later. This was called Frolinat and doubled by a man called Siddiq. The situation could not be stabilized without heavy reliance on French troops and advisers. Tombel Baye secretly opposed the French policy of doubling and was killed in a military coup in 75. He was accused of economic errors and an attempted authentication of all the country's peoples. True or not, these ideas were made up in Western Europe. His successor, General Feli Mayum, accepted the yoke of reconciliation and disorientation of the northern rebels into small bands, but they were no more under his control than before. A piece of contiguous real estate called the Aouzou Strip was seized by Libya, who then threw increasing support behind the northern Muslim nomads. The French increased their military support. The situation deteriorated rapidly in 77 and 78 with the Frolinat group led by Gukuni Kadei advancing southward and the French increasingly disenchanted with the regime they had protected for so long. In a last-ditch effort to retain power, Mayum signed an agreement with the mercurial former Frolinat leader Hissine Habre, a secret chameleon-like loan operator who can wheel and deal with absolutely anyone. Ideology is not involved. Habre arrived a month later to take up the post of Prime Minister with a bodyguard of 250 armed men. Hissine Habre used his first months in the new post to gather followers from the Moslems in the National Army, which soon began disintegrating along ethnic lines. Just as we passed, with the main body of Frolinat forces led by Gukuni Kadei advancing southward with Libyan support, fighting broke out between Habre's forces and the demoralized Sara troops loyal to Mayum. Saras began leaving the north, and Moslems fled northward from the south. The French, outnumbered, intervened here and there to damp down the fighting, but are not apparently trying to prop up the government. What we see here, of course, is the redoubling of the French by the Libyans, the French having lost some of their classic taste for sang-froid. And the Libyans thereby leave themselves open to the missing trick maneuver by the successors to the French sphere of influence, i.e. our boys back in the bloody med. It was all so messy and needless, some of us took to going down to the radio shack night after night with the prostitutes and drugs and alcohol. 
I was ready to slap faces. But in retrospect, that party takes on a very different significance from that which I then lent it. I see in it the almost childlike transparency of those people who, when miffed over something like their inability to praise me on my most recent remark, became socially helpless, unable even for a moment to dissemble a cordiality they did not feel. When hardship penetrates worldly veneer, every exchange, intimate or no, is governed by a gloomy arrière-pensée. They lack the necessary grace of hypocrisy without being saved from its vices. This will squelch a good time every time. It was shameless, and I soon stopped altogether, but not before I learned more than I wanted to know about radio war in Africa. Algerian-supported Polisario were fighting the Hassans of Morocco. South African troops were passing from Namibia, the old Southwest African protectorate, into Angola, raiding. I just got so confused, it seemed as if the colonial fabric of the entire continent were about to unravel. And all for man's unsatisfied ambition for economic progress, so aggravated by a framework of dogmatic notions of democratic institution. I think this is what the late Kennedy was trying to tell us just before he died. It was returning late one night from one of these soirées telegraphiques that I saw Miss Springman sitting on a padded deck chair outside the salon, her elbow at her stomach, her hand at her ear fiddling about with a gold ring through her lobe, her head cocked and her lips slightly pouting much in the manner of the auto girls in the industrial north of Italy. I passed her by without a word, not so much as a sideways glance. I just cut her dead. I know this must have hurt her deeply, but I had been drinking and was feeling ever so carefree and vicious. Anyway, so many women wish to be taken for prostitutes and then demand a lady's treatment afterwards. I wasn't going to take any chances with this little chippy. I went up to her the very next morning after breakfast and said, Why, Deborah, you seem to have my expression on your face. And then I made a big smile with my mouth, hoping against hope she could grasp somehow the fact that my statement was humorous in intent, even if she were incapable of delving the humor itself. Predictably, she looked hurt. I simply turned on my heel and went about my business. Later, in the course of our lunch, and I happened to say, Well, Deborah... What is the deep structure of this sentence? The cold chicken was then thrown into the hot fire. I hope to show her in this way that though I was definitely not interested in her or in her nasty condition, I was not unfriendly nor above discussion on certain seminal subjects. She left the room in tears, and I must say I feared the momentary censure of my fellow travelers. No matter how right you may in your heart feel, it is not right to send a girl away from a table in tears. You must know by now that I adhere to an ultra-strict moral stance and am absolutely merciless when it comes to self-criticism. So I certainly saw how it would be possible for one of the diners to think I had committed a social gaffe. But the tenor of opinion was yet with me. We all peaceably commenced again eating the sausage and fish so thoughtfully prepared by the cook. But please don't think these remarks gratuitous or unrelated to the actual transpiration of our prior verbal intercourse. Don't think them sarcastic cracks tossed in the face of a mealmate. I mean, it was not the same thing as yelling, Your mother's bum at a latent schizoid matricide in order to provoke some sort of more or less violent behavioral reaction in a crowded movie theater. I'm not that way. It was a retort apropos of the general drift of conversation. 
who had taken on livestock in Monrovia in the form of certain cackling pullet. In due time, their livers reached our tables chopped as an appetizer. Miss Springman complained of their tasting somehow strange to her, greasy and unclean. She was such a fussy eater. It tastes of the barnyard itself, she complained. I was perhaps too full of myself and said, Peradventure it be brain damage and chicken shit you taste, or some prior state of existence as the fowl mutate into swine. I could observe her mind through her eyes. The windows in her skull rise up and flutter about like a flock of gulls on a parade ground in an early morning rainstorm when disturbed by an erratically ambling pedestrian. Perhaps you would prefer fingers of beef for your lunch, I suggested. Let us discover the Chinese word for finger and holler it up to the cook through the ventilation system. I was being quite gay, playing out my life as jolly old Uncle Desmond, quite oblivious, quite unconcerned, quite me, in fact, for my appetite had returned for the first time since I had vomited onto the water off the skiff taking us out of Monrovia, and had had that chilling scene with Nanette. Then I said what I have said, I said. Well, Deborah, what is the deep structure of this sentence? The cold chicken was then thrown into the hot fire. She left, but was back before we had finished our meal, freshly made up, not a sign of our struggle and her tears. You might have thought she thought herself the source of the eighty-seven rivers of forgetfulness. What I had said to her had had about as much effect as a ball of wax shot from a pop-gun into a concrete culvert. I just gave her a stare that let her know in no uncertain terms she would never get under my skin. It was then she started stomping about the dining room in those absurd alligator cowboy toe shoes she wore, looking like she were suddenly Miss Society with the good word hanging off her bottom lip like slobber. Words flew wildly, as at Winwood. I lost some of my self-control, and in my desire to make the basic situation clear, my emotion burst forth in a deluge of angry sounds, desperate exaggerations, wild objurgations. Some of those assembled turned for me as from a man lost. Nanette Cattley summed up the scene by saying sardonically, "'Desmond wants a divorce.' "'I'll get her later,' I said to myself." It was all much simpler than anyone would admit. There was no need for anger or for shouting. When you cannot do anything about an objective situation and you are unwilling to face this fact, all the subjective furies will be unleashed to wreak havoc. But the facts are not altered. I swear I still think she did something unnatural when she was out of the room. And the way she moved, like a donkey smelt a grass snake in a high pass. Such an obvious play for attention. I just pushed my custard aside and left the table.